0: You're listening to Guess What I Learned Today, presented by Archon Forensic Engineers. On today's episode of the podcast, I spoke with Randy about trends in the industry with respect to uh, forensic engineering and kind of costing and all those things that kind of just come around uh, engineering disciplines. So guys, really interesting podcast. Again, Randy's wonderful to speak with, and this is going to be a monthly podcast that uh, Randy and I get together and talk about all the different things with regards to engineering. So sit back, enjoy this podcast, guys. I think you'll really enjoy what Randy had to say. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, Terry. I'm back with uh, WP Radio as I am every week here. And uh, this time I'm talking to Randy Henderson from Archon Forensic Engineering, and uh Randy, thanks again for being on WP Radio. Um, I'm looking forward, as as I said in our last session, our last podcast, um, that I'm really looking forward to digging into forensic engineering with you this year. And for the people that didn't listen to the podcast, but I'm going to tell you now, go back and listen to the first one because it's fantastic. For those people that didn't listen, can you give me a little insight to what
1: you guys do at Archon? Well, hi, Terry. It's great to see you again and... uh can't believe a month's flown by already since the last time I saw you. Uh, in response to your question, and at the risk of being a little redundant here, uh, I'll start with Archon. Arcon's a multidisciplinary forensic engineering firm that has been serving the Canadian property and casualty market for 55 years. Forensic engineering is all we do. Um, all of our practice areas, that's electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, fire investigation and civil and structural engineering all have multiple staff with a range of experience. We also offer environmental testing services through our service partners. My role at Arcon is threefold. I look after our marketing requirements along with developing business and coordinating client management initiatives.
0: Okay, so that's kind of cool, um, but we're going to be talking about different topics this this year with Arcon, and so that kind of brings me to today's topic. I mean, we're looking. we today we're going to look at the trends in forensic engineering, right? For the claims,
1: that's correct, Terry.
0: All right. So, what's going on out there? What's what's the trends? What are you seeing?
1: Well, it's uh, you know we, we don't have legal cases being uh, ruled on uh, constantly, so we're we're not quite like the legal industry where there's always something happening out there and something to. Uh, Uh, To write about and talk about and podcast about but there are some interesting things happening uh, Just in general in the world that affect forensic engineering and also within what we do in the uh, forensic engineering field Can you break it
0: down for me like what are the trends that you're seeing like regardless of the litigation Pieces and those kind of things. Can you break it down for us? What are the real trends that you're seeing at
1: Archon? Well, I think the, the first is likely no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast, and, and that's climate change. So weather events that we would typically experience during specific seasons and under certain circumstances are now occurring more randomly and with a surprising severity. So we've seen that in a number of cats over the last few years. I mean, in the time I've been here, there's there's been at least one weather-driven cat every year, uh, which has stress the industry. Uh, you know, we can no longer expect the gradual transition from season to season in terms of temperature and weather patterns. Uh, when these random severe events occur, they, they really stress the resource availability right through the, the chain involved in uh, resolving a claim. Uh, the second area, the next trend is is that of technology. So there's some very interesting innovations being introduced that are trying to address productivity and cost effectiveness, cost-effectiveness along with safety and, and accuracy of, uh, of work uh, the third overall trend I'll mention is the increasing focus on costs and time frames there's uh, an urgency around getting things made getting things done and uh, and doing them cheaply or, or as inexpensively as possible that's uh, that can have ramifications in in our industry for, for certain You know, for things like when preventative maintenance and regular replacement of parts um, that wear out is forfeited in terms of short-term cash flow, Uh, if everyone wants instant results, it's inevitable shortcuts occur in construction, manufacturing, and repair. Uh, Inexpensive, or, or, shall I say, rather cheap products can cause very expensive losses. So with less manufacturing capacity in Canada and more coming in... Uh, from overseas, where we can't really see the the quality of the product until it arrives, and at that point it's kind of too late. It just gets installed in the essence of time. Um, those things are are leading to uh, repetitive and and oft times expensive losses.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like that you've got three kind of headers here, right? We've got um, cats like weather changing, right? And then you you've talked about really the change in technology and then the third is basically you're focusing on cost so you know you're you're talking about these three specific trends or these overall trends do you got examples for them because i mean i can tell you me personally if i hear a hundred year storm again as like this is the hundred year storm i hear that every 30 days i think oh this is a hundred year storm well it's obviously not it's the 30-day storm Because these CAD events are happening so frequently, like you said. I mean, it's crazy. So I'm sure you have examples. I mean, me on the other side, on the insurance side, I've got a ton, but I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here to talk about Archon. (laughs) So let's kind of get your perspective on it, and then maybe we can dig into each one as we go along. That'd be cool, I think.
1: Well, you're right. We're seeing these over and over, and ideally we're learning from it. For example, we were involved in a... um, uh, the result of a tornado in Angus uh, a few years ago, and one of the the outcomes from that was that hurricane straps weren't used, um, binding the the trusses to the uh, the walls or the the top plate of the first story or second story as it may be. Uh, they're very cheap. It takes a little bit longer to install them on a structure, but there's there's a good chance that a lot of the damage that occurred would have been a, a lot less in that case. So there's, uh, you know that's something where hopefully it's been a learning um, learning event for people, but I, I don't know, I guess, until the, the next uh, tornado uh, that we see rip through somewhere. Hopefully it won't cause as much damage as it did in, uh, in Angus. Um, but getting back to your point, in the area of uh, civil and structural engineering, these weather events have a massive impact in terms of resource availability. For example, in Angus, once again, the the local building department was overwhelmed. So engineers uh, from our firm and and other firms as well were actually doing the work of building inspectors instead of forensic engineers just simply because there were no resources. Uh, So it, it definitely impacts resource availability. Um, nobody wants to wait days or weeks uh, on a resource to inspect the property to see if it's safe to go in and get your valuables or or to get restoration work underway um, if building permits and and drawings are needed. So we understand that. But if uh, if the if the the weather event triggers the the number of claims as as it has in, in a number of places lately, uh, there's just not the resources and, and it does take time to to work through these. Uh, the culture of faster and cheaper, um, that was my third kind of uh, trend, sure uh, also leads to issues in the civil and structural area. So for example, with the Ontario Building Code, there's all kinds of uh, deficiencies that, that we come across. Uh, it's basically in the name of getting work done to budget. So do you spend a few additional percentage points up front to deal with the possibility of, of an event in the future? That's not for me to say, but I, I know it does have ramifications for, uh, for claims. On a, on a positive note, uh, technology is is having a, a, an effect. Um, the use of video camera equipped drones save time when we're trying to inspect uh, rooftops. Uh, they also increase the level of safety for on site inspections of tall buildings and roofs. We have uh, lidar based tools that, that save time by creating very accurate, three-dimensional representations of a building. Um, so that certainly saves time on-site instead of doing uh, hand measurements. And also in the, um, the drawing perspective, so that it, it automatically downloads those points that it, uh, that it maps. And so we get that first level of drafting out almost instantaneously.
0: So speaking about that, so and, and I hear us say LIDAR and a few things, but I'm gonna jump back because you did say, you know, in the case where, you know, it's a small town and they have building, you know, there's only so many people from the city. Were you guys actually acting for the city or were you still acting for the insurance company and signing off or taking it to the city trying to do the two step pro process? to kind of expedite things. So that's a really interesting point that I think a lot of people miss. When you have a cat, you're really, you're taxing the resources from the city because they may only have two or three building inspectors. And if they get 500 buildings, who do they go see first?
1: Well, that's exactly the point. So there were so many houses on this street and it was, when you looked at an overhead picture, it was amazing the devastation in a in a line and houses you know, 100 yards away were, were untouched. But the yeah. you're right, so it's where do they start? Um, the other thing that they may not have seen, they're, they're just not used to, to seeing that type of damage. So the building inspectors in a small town may not be used to seeing the, the resultant damage of a tornado ripping through their, their town. Whereas forensic engineers, See it a lot more regularly, so we're able to get in there very quickly and, and ascertain, you know, there's a whether there's a structural issue, a cosmetic issue. Uh, is it safe? Um, can it be made safe? How can it be made safe? So, yeah, we were we were initially called by the insurers, but the the local building inspectors were also asking if we could feedback input on the buildings we were going into because they couldn't see all the buildings in a timely manner. And it was, it would be duplication of effort to have our guys uh, looking at it and, um, and then having the the town also have to go in and have a look at it. See, that's,
0: that's fantastic. And I think that's, commu- that goes a lot to our first podcast with communication with resources. So, I mean, I, and I hope we're going to tie these in as we go along, but I think that's great because, you know, maybe you, you guys have an agreement. And again, I don't know what went on with the Angus claims, but I think that'd be great because there's nothing worse than, you know, you getting a call from an insured seven, 10 days later. And I say, okay, well, that's great. My engineer's seen it, but the city hasn't approved it. So I think that what you're kind of saying in those kind of situations is the city's letting you step in, be their eyes and ears. And they're gonna, not that they're gonna rubber stamp it, but they're gonna let things progress because they're taxed. And they can't do things. And and if you've got a professional engineer that's doing that, I think that might might expedite things. Is that a fair comment?
1: Definitely. And I th- I think that's um, you do see that. It, it's kind of like scientists working together to to develop um, a vaccine. Uh, well, well, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't want to use that that specific experience because the that is uh, at a much level much different level of urgency than what we were dealing with. But you know, they're they're professionals and they're uh, what the work they do is based in, in science, and, and I think those types of personalities and your training to become one of those, uh, those qualified professionals leads you to want to do the right thing and, uh, and, and work with other colleagues with similar um, experience and things. So it was a very, it was a very collegial um, situation.
0: Okay, and, and again, I want and I've made some notes here as I've gone along. So uh, for those people who don't know,
1: what is LIDAR mapping? it's basically you'll see it on self-driving cars it's a very awkward thing that sits up on top of the car and gives you 360 degree radar essentially of um uh, of what's going on around the car so when it comes to and and you know i am not a lidar (laughs) specialist sure but it it essentially they can set up the uh, the device on a tripod in a room and it basically uh, has uh, LED lights, and it uh, sends, I guess, laser pulses out to, to measure the, the distance of, um, or light pulses out uh, to measure the distances to the walls. It, it basically shows everything from the, uh, the, the ducts and the floor, and, and then once all the rooms are done, they can get uh, a floor plan very quickly, so, so like I say, they, they basically set it up, they press a button and it does all the measurement, whereas historically, you, you, know, you might pull out your tape measure and start measuring the, the width and the height and then move on to the next room and do the hallway. So, you know, and then you, you go back to the office and those measurements need to be input to the, uh, the CAD software, whereas in this case, the, the room is done in, in a matter of minutes if not less, uh, and then you move to the next room, so a lot less time on site. And then when you come back, there's a bit of massaging of the data and then it goes right into the CAD software and, and gives you your floor plan right away
0: so that's fantastic and again um if anybody hasn't seen lidar mapping again i'm gonna at the end of the podcast and we're gonna give you randy's coordinates it, even if he just sends out a sample so you kind of see what it is but it, the technology is incredible and i you know i encourage everybody to reach out to Arcon and and talk to them about the lidar mapping it's just it's technology moving at such a pace that you've got to start using this stuff, and I and again, I know we've got our loss assessment guys that use tape measures and do this stuff, but I mean, the actual LiDAR mapping is such an advancement in getting accurate measurements for your buildings, your heights, your widths, your dimensions. It's incredible. So I, you know, I do encourage you to, you know, when you're using your engineer and let's, you know, we'll just say Archon, um, just make sure, yeah. You'll look and see, read that lidar mapping. It's it's an incredible tool and uh, piece of information that I think everybody should start to to look at.
1: Yeah, like you know, in this case, I guess I know enough to be dangerous. But um, yeah, we do have a gentleman in the office who's kind of becoming the uh, the specialist in that area. Uh, well, I guess back to uh, you know how these the implications for our various areas from these three trends. Uh, I'll move on to mechanical engineering. So uh, with mechanical engineering, our engineers routinely deal with component failures that are a result of either improper use or installation or products whose quality invites failure. So they're, they're just not up to the up to the job that they're being used for. Um, in large failures, there can be the questions of whether better or more often routine maintenance might have mitigated the damage. So that's the, the trend of you know cheaper and faster is it, we see that a lot in in the mechanical area where um it is pipe fittings parts? uh it it's in some cases it's just you're buying parts it? that have not been tested for the application for example or the somebody it's it's a part they're not used to. They install it too tight, and then it cracks. Uh, or they're using it in a, a range of temperature that it's not tested for. So that it's was... it hasn't been hasn't been tested for the specific application. In some cases, they're just really cheap um, cheaply made. Uh, the materials uh, a cheap quality of plastic, for example, rather than a higher uh, grade of of plastic. And there are different grades of, of plastic out there um, that make a difference in terms of the, their longevity.
0: Yeah, and I can think of a case, and, I, and again, it's just when you said that cheaply made or the, it not having the right tensile strength, I don't know if that's the right word. Again, I have no engineering, but I, again, I know a few words, and that sometimes makes me dangerous. Um, but I, I remember a case where I had these hot water heaters, and they had um, plastic screws in them, But they were, I guess one of them broke and the guy replaced it, but he replaced it with the wrong color screw. And that wrong color screw didn't have the right temperature allowance or specifications. So as much as it fit and it looked right, as soon as it got over 180 degrees, it failed. And it Mm -hmm. failed dangerously. Like we're talking a lot of water and (laughs) it was crazy. And had the engineer not known and the engineer seen that that was the cause of the failure, we wouldn't known that there was a subrogation issue from a plumber who had just put in the wrong product weeks ago. We would have just thought, man, this is an old, and it was an old hot water heater, but he put in the wrong part. But had that engineer not actually seen that, you know, and done the test and done a comparable, we would have never known that. So, I mean, and again, that's important with having a proper engineer go out and take a look at it, right? I think I think that's that's important to write. Um, but let's move on. So I, I, I keep stopping you. So let's talk about electrical failures because I know okay. that happens a lot.
1: Okay, with with electrical failures, uh, with large electrical failures. So I'm talking turbines and, and cabling that you'll see underground in uh, in Toronto and piped into the, the office towers. Like a lot of cases, we're dealing with aging infrastructure. Um, so where that has failed or, or whether severe weather has caused a, a loss that would not normally have been expected if it weren't for climate change, uh, the, the cost or the time and, and cost trend is met, that I mentioned earlier uh, is also impactful for electrical failures where, um, for example, extension cords... Um, are being used inappropriately. They're not rated for uh, what they're plugged into or they're being used where uh, the the appliance should have been plugged directly into the wall. So uh, in those cases, it, it's it's just somebody taking the quick and, and easy, the, the quick and dirty solution that uh, leads, it's an electrical failure that ends up with a, uh, resulting in a fire and um, you know, a loss that way. So. I do find the, the severity of the, the failure when it comes to these electrical issues, uh, they can be very high in terms of cost.
0: Yeah, and it's funny because I think about my own shortcomings sometimes. So I remember I had a claim, and again, I'll just go back to the stuff that I've dealt with because, I mean, I've seen a ton of claims in my 25 years in in the insurance industry. But I had a claim where it was an extension cord where somebody had put a plastic bucket from Christmas decorations on top of the extension cord for the Christmas tree. So they had done all their decorating, they put all this stuff back in, and they set this plastic bucket on the extension cord that was plugged into a Christmas tree. And then what do you know, it didn't have the right, you know, literally it caused the um, extension cord and the, the plug itself to overheat. And then in essence, unfortunately, caused a large fire in their house. And then I went home and started looking around my house and I found an extension cord that I had put a bucket on and it literally had started to melt. So, I mean, I'm just, you know, lucky that that loss made me think about, hey, I have an extension cord in my basement. Let me go check it. And sure enough, it was pretty close to being damaged. So, and again, it wasn't that it, the appliance was even turned on because it wasn't. It was just, it was drawn current to the cord. So again, yeah, no, the, it's, it's really interesting when... I can take these and, I mean, these mechanical failures, I mean, I don't have any aging uh, power systems in my house, thank God, but uh, but I think you're right. I think uh, as adjusters and insurance people, we need to look at these when we're looking at the claims closer because, again, you can help us with the subrogation end. Is it improper use, improper installation? I mean, these are all great things that, again, tie back to, and I think we're gonna do this all year, tie back to the budgeting and, and costs and and the importance of actually having a proper engineer on site. So again, you've got your electrical failures and then from your electrical failures, who comes next but your fire investigators. So (laughs) let me talk about those guys.
1: Yeah, and I I alluded to that uh, just uh, a moment ago but um, the fire investigators routinely deal with situations where where fire safety protocols have been ignored. an electrical product has failed or has been used improperly, and where cheap th- synthetic products have been have increased the extent of damage in a in a fire. Um, some of the same technology that civil and structural engineers are now um, incorporating into their work, such as drones, are also useful in fire investigations. But um, actually, I missed a point in the mechanical. You know, in some cases, it it's. Not that a a product was installed improperly or designed improperly, or or it's poor manufacturing, but sometimes you you don't know until um, you know the product gets fully engaged in its use. So for for an example of that, I'll use the uh, um, the wind turbines. So we've had. over the last few years a number of wind turbine failures which are interesting to uh, investigate because you've got to get all the way up uh, whatever a 200 tall um, wind turbine to to look at the the failure in situ but those were you know everything's designed according to what uh, was specified you you think it's going to last for a long time uh, and then it gets installed and perhaps some environmental factors uh, start having an impact uh, and it's being used, so in essence, it's being used in an environment it wasn't necessarily designed for, if we're having severe weather more repeatedly that the the wind turbine wasn't uh, designed for. So that's uh, another example of where climate change has an impact on, Something you know, such as a, a wind turbine, which is being built to uh, address climate change. So it's it's a ironic conundrum there.
0: Yeah, and and, and you talked about, and I just I'm not going to interrupt you as much as I'm I'm trying not to interrupt you because uh, it's really interesting. But I, you did use a word in situ, and there's going to be people that listen to this and are going to immediately, first of all, going to try and figure out how it's spelt and then secondly they're going to try and google it to figure it out so maybe you can tell people what in situ is because it is it is actually quite interesting and things should be done in situ where they're available
1: yes well certain failures you know if they're repaired or they're ripped out and sent to us in lab sometimes it's hard to diagnose what happened so I mean, that's essentially what we're trying to do with a lot of these failures is, is what happened, uh, what were the chain of events, and then also why did it happen? So what happened and why? Um, if if a failure happens and everything is left as it was, then, you know, fire investigator, mechanical uh, engineer can go and have a look at It's much more realistic. And pictures are great, but if they can actually see it uh, with their own eyes... Um, it it helps them diagnose and, and really understand what's going on around the uh, um, or around the the equipment that failed for example um, because in some cases it, it is the environment of the where the equipment is based. You know, it might be the temperature of the room, it might be there's no air conditioning, the room got superheated, um, maybe th- there was no heating and it, uh, it got cooled and was trying to operate uh, at a temperature that was too cold and kept kicking in and that uh, overheated the motor and then the bearings seized and created a fire. So it, it, the, the chain of events sometimes is easier to, to figure out if we're able to see the, the failure as it failed. In place, in place,
0: and then take it for non-destructive testing. We'll get into that, I'm sure, in mm-hmm. another another <laughs> podcast. But and then do destructive testing with everybody's available. But that's for another day, as they say. So um, let let's continue on and let's talk about like all of the engineering disciplines. So you've got these universal challenges, really, with forensic engineering community, and you guys are facing these. I think all together, or or how are you guys facing these problems?
1: Well, well, there's certain uh, technologies out there that are available to everyone and, uh, and, and make everybody more productive and, you know, whether it's us or another firm or whether it's the engineers in different disciplines within our firm, but um, the, the use of tablets on site uh, means an engineer can take pictures and video of a loss right there um, and give an almost immediate initial assessment to the adjuster or examiner. So they could take pictures... Uh, do some initial investigation, throw the pictures into an email uh, or a Word document, uh, give your initial assessment, and send it off. Um, All of that is great, especially when we tie it back into the whole budgeting and scope of work that we talked about in the last um, podcast. Then it allows the examiner or claims advisor to be able to make a, an educated decision on the next steps and, and whether any more investment is warranted and, and what needs to be done. Uh, conferencing software is also something that's somewhat in its infancy, but can be, certainly be used to cut down travel costs uh, and improve overall productivity. Uh, there's situations where joint inspections are, are required. It may be possible um, and I don't, I can't give you any instances where I, I know of where it's happened, but it may be possible to to have the, the testing live stream to other engineers that are remote from the uh, the testing site. So I think conferencing software is also something that might um, further down the road drive more more productivity and, and more efficiency um, in forensic engineering.
0: Well, that,
1: I mean that
0: you talk about live streaming and maybe doing joint investigation and i think that's really interesting i mean um i remember a case where i had um an engineer where it i it was a liability claim and they were my client had done some work on a machine and then the machine subsequently had a fire and uh it, the engineer from archon had gone out and you know it was really interesting because it was a red herring really. The fact that he had worked on the machine and done some some welding on it and then it had a fire turned out to be a red herring. It The fire actually migrated to the area where he worked. It didn't start there. But had I not used an engineer and he had the proper tools to really kind of weigh off or take off the, the you know, we it, the person that was looking at it was an independent adjuster and his immediate Thought was hey, the this caused the fire, but after having you know your engineer go out and take a look at things, they were like no, actually it wasn't the cause. It it da- suffered damage in the result and was able to prove that. And I think that's uh, goes a lot to say about the type of tools you guys use and and actually being able to show the migration by photos. And I I mean. It, it, we changed our budget and we'll talk, you know, we talked about in the last one, we had to reevaluate our budget because there was a lot more time involved in it as well. But I mean, it's, it's those kind of tools. And like you said, and videos and things that you guys have used, I think that really, again, is changing how we do things and it, it, and the advancement in the technology is unbelievable. Um, but so, you know, can you summarize for me? those trends, that these trends are coming,
1: that, you know? So back to uh, your point about challenges that uh, all of the participants in the forensic engineering field are uh, experiencing. Yeah, there's certainly some. There's, uh, you know, despite the advancements in technology, and and there's the advancements in technology is uh, uneven. So uh, the technology that might aid forensic engineers is not uh, maybe... Proceeding at the same pace of technology that uh, helps with office productivity of brokers and uh, uh, you know with independent adjusters, for example. So, despite the the advancements which are there and are helping the investigative work, you know, engineers still need to review what they've found, perform background research, and come up with an explanation that fits the facts, and that takes time. So the, the challenge is, uh, you know, everybody wants an answer right away, um, but there's really no no method that I'm aware of that we can just simply enter the facts and the data that we find into a computer and some artificial intelligence algorithm comes out with the answer <laughs> in a cohesive format. So, so, I mean, that, that is a challenge. This, um, wanting answers quicker, uh, totally understand that. And, and technology is helping us in some ways, but, um, uh, y- there is, there's still work to be, uh, to be done that, that takes time. Uh, I guess the other thing too is, um, and it's really uh, related to the increasing frequency of cats. Uh, engineering firms are, are like any professional services. You, you can't train an accountant. You can't train a lawyer overnight um, to have them start uh, accounting and lawyering for you. And same thing with a forensic engineer. It, it takes time. So when there's uh, uh, when these events occur more frequently, it taxes the, the whole... Um, the, the, the resources that are available to deal with them. So once again, uh, things will still take time. So things cannot happen immediately. And I guess the, the last challenge I'll mention is that uh, you know large national insurers are asking for national coverage and lower rates. Um, you know, this is hard to do because there are regional disparities in terms of resources and in terms, uh, or and in many geographies, uh, the assignment volume wouldn't Necessarily support having multiple engineers from from different disciplines in a regional office. So then, what you get is a jack of all trades, and then and thus quality may suffer. Um, it, it's counterintuitive to expect lower rates from vendors and then ask them to increase coverage and invest in new technologies. So, you know, to get back to that that partnership that I mentioned in the last um, podcast. It, it is a partnership, and and if uh, if we're really truly working as partners, then then everybody benefits from it.
0: Yeah, and I, mean, I got to agree with you. I mean, it's like you don't go to a car dealership to order a salad, right? And I know that sounds just kind of a weird thing to say, but, but I agree with you because, I mean, you want a good quality engineer and you don't want him being a jack of all trades. I want a fire investigator to investigate my fire. I don't want a fire investigator to go that does water damage claims. I, and again, I want a structural engineer that does structural. So, yeah, and, and I get that you can't have 50 on staff because it doesn't support it. I mean, I like the fact that Archon's a boutique firm and you guys have a really strong core of really great engineers that have a really focused discipline. I mean, I think that's what makes you guys a little different from everybody else uh, in the essence that you're not everything to everybody. You're specific in your disciplines and you stay in your lane. And, and as a result, you've been around 55 years. I mean, that has to say, you know, something, it's, you, you just didn't start up yesterday, right? And I think that has a lot to say with people like that about you guys as well, right? So um, it's interesting, again, I, again we're gonna talk about this as the, as the year goes on and all the different things we're talking about, but, you know, um, and, and I'd asked you before, like, can you give me a summary of what outcomes you think you could propose from these trends? If you were talking about these three trends that we've really talked about today
1: well I think you know what I'd like to see is just people working together as, as partners you know when it comes to the insurers and forensic engineering firms in general you know if we work as partners it, it's going to improve the client experience for insureds. When challenges like cats arise, partners can work through those times more effectively than an, uh, antagonists. Um, You know, vendors are treated as critical enablers of client satisfaction during the claims process rather than simply a cost center. uh, The overall quality of the customer experience will improve and firms will be able to be early adopters of those technologies that will ultimately improve cycle times and reduce costs for insurers. Um, You know, insurers I think also need to understand that some firms and, and thus engineering resources are better at some things than others. There's, there's no reason to have fewer firms in order to get lower costs. It, it really comes down to using the firm and using the engineer that, that um, is best suited for that specific loss. So some firms are very good in one area and some firms are very good in another. There's, there's a lot of truth in that. And, uh, you know, I'm not uh, ashamed to say that, you know, we are, like you said, we, we have our specialties. And if we can't do something, we'll, we'll be very upfront and say we're not the best to, to help you with that. There's, there's other people in other firms, and we routinely, uh, amongst, uh, amongst peers, there, there's a lot of um, respect that way, and so you will see assignments getting referred from one, one uh, firm to another, but really at the, uh, at the engineer level, one, one engineer will refer another, because there is that, um, that understanding and, and that uh, respect amongst the, uh, the professionals.
0: Well, and and I do like that. I got to be honest. I, as much as I hate you telling me no, that's not what you do. Because you have to remind me sometimes when I call in to talk to you. I do like that you won't take a job just for the sake of taking it. And and I like I love the fact that you're like, hey, this isn't. We don't do this. Remember, this is what we do. We do these, and but we don't do that. And and I think that's awesome. And I think really at the end of the day, I'm you know I'm hearing communications patent. Partnerships really is the focus on you know insurance insurers having a better to deal with the trends outside of their control and I, I and I love that I, I really do and I think that we need to take advantage of that more um, is the partnerships that we do have with our vendors and uh, and not looking for a lower rate I I get that um, and I and I think that's I think when we're done this series this year um, I think. Hopefully, we'll have educated everybody on both sides, be it uh, plaintiff side or defense side, that you know there's value in what people do, and they should be paid for their value, right?
1: Most definitely. I couldn't have said it better if I'd written that myself, Terry.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, again, Randy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I love that this, uh, you know, we're into the second month and we're really starting to dig in. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with. Um, other people in your firm. So stay tuned, guys. Again, I said I'd say it at the end. So, Randy, how are people going to reach you and reach Archon?
1: Well, you can reach me and uh, and thus Archon at uh, my email, which is randy.henderson at archonforensics.com. And Archon Forensics is A-R-C-O-N-F-O-R-E-N-S-I-C-S.com. And my cell is 416 and guys,
0: if you miss that, it will be posted on all of the social media that this uh, podcast's on, or if you're listening to on the podcast channel, just scroll down, you'll see Randy's information. And guys, really, I do, I, I do ask you to take advantage of reaching out to Randy. He's a wealth of information, and he can really direct you to the right engineer in the firm to take care of your needs. So um, I, I do appreciate uh, Archon being on and, uh, and speaking with Randy. And uh, I think you guys uh, just send me some information. I mean, we've got great future topics coming, but if there's something you really want to hear about engineering, let me know and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen for you guys. So again, Randy, thanks again for being on the podcast and we'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Terry. Thanks.